to the You Show Show. It is the show where you show things. I am Kelvin Lays McMurray, and I'm joined again today by Matthew Hardy. Matthew, hello, and welcome back to the studio. It's good to have you here. Hello, thanks for having me back. Flew you in all the way from Canada to be part of our studio. I hope, I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. Long flight. The, yeah, long flight, twice, twice in one week, because you're a trooper. Um, yeah, so I, I forgot to mention last episode, you are, you are the first for two categories on this show. And I forgot to mention this last episode, and I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I've ruined everything. The first is that you are our first international uh, guest on the show. You are our first uh, non-American to be on the show because you are indeed Canadian. Uh, and, and am I your only Canadian friend? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I yeah. Actually, yes. In terms of like true Canadian citizenship, yes. Because I still know a couple people yeah. that live in Canada that I consider quasi-friends. But in terms of... Canadian bloodborn, yes, a hundred million percent. So yeah, excellent. And then I also forgot to mention, and I really wanted to bring this up. You are also our first celebrity on the show. <laughs> oh man, I, do you know where I'm going with this? I do know where you're going with this, <laughs> and I'm really excited to talk about that aspect because that's another nerdy thing that I never get to talk about with anyone. <laughs> so when we left film school. Um, as we talked about last time, you were, you were, you were into audio mixing and audio editing and sound design and you got a job and you became, and I was really jealous at the time. I'll tell you right now, I was so jealous when you told me this, uh, when I had to come back to the United States, uh, that you got to be the voice for little Mac. And I think it was 2006 punch out for the Nintendo Wii U. Uh, yeah, it was like, no, it was like 2000, it was later than that. It was like 2009, 2009? 2008 maybe. Okay. Yeah. For punch out Wii. The remake. Yeah, you were the voice of Little Mac, which um, uh, I, I actually found some... I never played the game. Uh, I liked the Punch-Out series, but I never owned a Wii or a Wii U or whatever. But um, uh, yeah, you were the voice of Little Mac, which mostly consists of like grunts and like heavy breathing, if I remember. Yep, and a couple of cheers. <laughs> I think there might have been like one word in there. I can't remember. Like, yeah, or ha-ha. <laughs> So how did you get into character? Tell us the story of how you fell into this character. So I was working for a studio called, right out of film school, I started working for a studio called Next Level Games. And uh, for fans of Nintendo franchises, whatnot, we were a third-party developer for for Nintendo and um, titles that they've done. They're really, they're really well known for the Luigi's Mansion games now. They've uh, oh, okay. had a lot of success with those. Um, we were the first one. We're known for Super Mario Soccer back in the day. And on the Wii, it was like the, I think it was when we did Super Mario, Super Mario Strikeout, Strikers. That was the, uh, the first online competitive game for the Wii. Wow. And I was a, I was, I was an intern on that one. And, but anyway, I was there for a few years and, um, it, the studio 
Punch Out had always been a favorite of like the directors of the studio, and because we're the studio had been building this or nurturing this relationship with Nintendo, they convinced Nintendo to uh, allow them to do a remake of Punch Out, and they were a little bit skeptical, I think, um, but they allowed us. They allowed the studio to go ahead with it, and it ended up being a top ten game that that uh, that year, I think, and I think it's still one of the. It might still be one of the best-selling ones on the Wii for, uh, for yeah, in, for those years and uh, oh, that's cool. that time. Huh. Um, but so, anyways, it was a, one of the. It might have been one. It was might have been one of the first projects I worked on out of school, and uh, I mean, I, I got to contribute to a lot of aspects of of, uh, of the sound design for the game, including like the secret characters like Donkey Kong, and uh, I remember doing like Aaron Ryan and. Um, Mr. Dream or Sandman or whoever it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, in there, I also like got to do uh, little Mac and I think he was originally intended not to have a voice because he obviously didn't have a voice in any of the original games. And I, I mean, one day I just like decided to put some in there for a little bit of extra life and um, <laughs> nobody called me out on it. They're just like, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and then they, and then somehow they're just like, okay, we need a little bit more. So I just ended up, doing the same thing for like, uh, for all the cutscenes and, um, and I mean, they're pretty minimal, but the, the cutscenes like interspersed all the different fights and the circuits and whatnot. And I just added them in there and, um, everybody was okay with it. And, uh, and apparently like, <laughs> uh, I think, I think I was like one of the, one of the favorite voice actors for Little Mac and I've, and regrettably I've never been invited back to do it because like he's been like smash brothers games. And like, I was never invited. I, well, cause I remember when that game came out, cause you were, you were credited on IMDb. Uh, uh I, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the Nintendo wiki as the official voice of little oh, Mac. That's so, that's so fucking cool. And then, uh, yeah, I thought about that right away. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, little Mac is in the super smash brothers. But unfortunately that, that title went to somebody else. So, uh, <laughs> everybody listening, boycott, <laughs> Super Smash Brothers. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it's like good. Good luck boycotting that game. It's like one of those popular games of all time. But uh, don't po don't boycott it. Just uh, just make it known that you like the return of your of, <laughs> of Matt of Matthew Hardy as the voice of Little Mac. I, I mean, it's a role I would happily reprise. Hashtag bring Matt back. Hey, it only it only ta it only takes one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, I would love for you to reprise your role as Little Mac uh, of just doing grunts and huffs and puffs. And yeah, I, I think I think if there's anything in this world that deserves it, it's you. But yes, yeah, so you are the first celebrity guest that we have on the show. So thank you again for uh, thanks for being here. We're we're we're, had, we're glad to have you here. So um, <laughs> my pleasure. Thank thanks for allowing me the opportunity to. Uh... <laughs> to revel in my my voice acting success hells to the yeah dude um but today we are here we are here to talk about uh one of my favorite films of all time uh alien 1979 ridley scott and uh let me i want to start out really quick see a conversation so this is a this is a good movie my friend my friend ben uh, ben, I was telling you about him. He did the music for this podcast, and and, and he he's a huge film buff. He loves movies. But Ben is uh, see, Ben's a person that would watch this movie, and it's about a giant space alien monster that murders people. And I watch this movie, and I think about the meaning of uh, nightmares uh, and the horrors of sexuality and rape. <laughs> and it, interesting. It goes back to a conversation. Um, 
I can't remember who it was for, but Quentin Tarantino did an interview once where he talked about how to watch movies. And his argument was that both sides of the coin are acceptable. It's just you kind of have to know which one you are. And his the argument that he was, he was going for was that there's like kind of two people in this world. There's somebody that could watch King Kong, the original, the black and white one, and see a movie about... A science expedition that goes to an island, picks up a giant ape, brings it back to New York, causes a little bit of destruction, and that's it. That's the end of the movie. And, you know, there's a a blonde woman that he falls in love with. Yeah, and credits roll. And there's another type of people that would watch King Kong and see it as an allegory for the African slave trade. Yep. And I am a little bit more in that camp. I think that writing is a process where people's subconscious seeps onto the pages. And there's a lot of examples of this in in all the history of cinema, you know, the hundred plus years uh, that we've had it. And I think that Alien is a great example of that. Um, like, you know, one thing I can, you know, say right off the bat is look at the alien's head and tell me it's not phallical in nature. I mean, it, it, that's just kind of for starters. So, um, so let's... Yeah, huh? Fair, definitely. Fair. And um, so let's get into it. So we, we rewatched Alien. We've, again, like Interstellar, we both hadn't seen this film before. Uh, we watched it again for this. Uh, rewatching it, we're like some. I guess let's. Okay, let's fucking do it proper. Let's learn from our mistake. Let's just get over. Let's just do a quick <laughs> firing through the synopsis of the film because that is a good place to start with. And then we'll jump into our theories. We'll learn from our mistakes. So, Alien, uh, we'll do it together. Film crew, middle of nowhere, in the middle of space. They're, they're effectively, like, they've... I, it's, I think it's, like, gases, right? Like, they've, they've harvested a bunch of gases on yeah. their ship, and now they're bringing the ship back to Earth. They wake up. They wake up early. They, well, they, yeah, they don't know it's early, but they wake up early, and, uh, and they realize that they're still 10 months away from Earth and that they have received a distress signal. So the computer woke the ship up from effectively a cryo sleep. Um, and, uh, uh, and now they have to go explore this distress beacon that is alien in origin. Um, the crew is just kind of your ragtag group of people. They're, no one's really exceptional. No one's extraordinary. They're all kind of greasy. They're all kind of dirty. They're all smoking cigarettes. They're all complaining about their jobs. They're kind of everyday people, which is a quick little thing that I love about this movie is like the I, most science fiction films at this point were like, look at how amazing our astronauts are. Like Matthew McConaughey would not fit in this movie from Interstellar at all because now it's like space travel has become so normal that that's why people always say they're space truckers, you know, in the future. And um, so... They go explore the planet. There's a crazy, weird spaceship that has a very weird design and shape to it. They go on board, and what we call the face hugger attaches itself to John Hurt's character's cane. They bring Kane back on the ship. We realize that this face hugger has implanted an egg inside of his chest. The alien creature explodes out of the chest and then one by one picks up the crew until we figure out our main character, Ripley. Uh, creates a self-detonation on the ship, she gets away, and then we have the f- magical fourth act, one of the first films to do the, f- the, the, the the fourth act of a film where the alien survives one more time and has one last showdown with Ripley. She blows it up the airlock, fires up the jets, blows the thing into space, and then she goes back to sleep. Anything I missed? Yeah. 
Uh, nope, that sounds very. <laughs> this film is so much easier to sum up than it just. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, in terms of like a pure story, yes, it's very simple. But then I think its themes are are very deep. So um, rewatching it, what are like things that stood out to you? What are some thoughts that you have on this film? So I, I can't remember the last time I watched this. It, it, uh, I definitely watched it in film school. I can't remember if I watched it around the time that Prometheus came out again. I, I think I must have, but in any case, it, it's been it's been at least five years, uh, potentially eight or nine, since I last watched it, and a lot has happened in the world since then. And I'm still amazed at how surprisingly relevant this film is. Like it has really stood the test of time, like visually, thematically, and then in terms of like sheer horror and terror and whatnot, and. As you were saying, like uh, as you were saying, like before that, you think, I know you could somebody could watch King Kong and see it as like a monster, just it, literally a monster film, or see it as like a um, a critique of of um, clo- uh, Western colonialism and whatnot. Um, now I see Alien as as like a, a well as one as like uh, one that really fights for um, uh, gender equality, but then and another one that is very like anti capitalist in subtone and very dystopic and where i mean the last time i watched it i think i probably watched it for very different reasons like i hadn't quite developed like the awareness of of uh i know capitalism or even gender gender or uh, gender or racial inequality and and now and those and, and i believe those themes were definitely like uh were were, were um were uh definitely very intentional even in the even in 1979 and i hadn't picked up on that until like uh, really like i'd never considered it until watching it again this week i i agree wholeheartedly i remember watching it in college as well as like a young dumb 19 year old boy and just yeah it was it was just like oh cool space monster with two mouths is killing people fucking dope thumbs up and um no, I, I, I agree with you. I think through a lot of things that we've gone through culturally in the last years um, of people trying to understand, you know, women and other, you know, ethnic groups and races and religions. And I agree. I, I can now watch this and kind of, a, not kind of, I can have a better understanding of the themes of what women are going through. Like, for example, so one of my favorite characters is actually is Ash. I don't like him, but you're not supposed to. Uh, Ash is the medical science officer, and when you watch his behavior in this movie, especially you know that he's gonna, you know, betray the crew. If you watch him, he's the most interesting character in the movie. Like his eyes and how he's watching the situation and analyzing everything is all in the name of enhancing the corporation, and he's just a corporate stooge that is just there to make sure that this alien gets home safely, and that's the only thing he cares about. But, um, you know, like when they come back to the ship and the facehugger is attached to Kane and Ripley, uh, uh, Ellen Ripley, played amazingly by Sir Ronnie Weaver, is saying we can't let him on the ship. He's contaminated and he could make it dangerous for everyone on the ship. And Ash just supersedes her order and just opens up the, 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 the airlock and lets them in. And it's kind of this like, yeah, like she's a woman. I can just I can just do this. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, what is what yeah. is she going to do? And um, it definitely uh, goes a little bit then deeper into like the horror of like who is really the monster in this movie? Is it is it this 
alien star beast creature or is it the people that are behind the scenes so yep absolutely and uh and there's just like ash is i guess we'll, we'll talk about ash for a minute because his character yeah and then like um he, he he's he's also an android and so he's been, yeah and so he's been he's been programmed like uh, programmed and then with the explicit purpose of disregarding anything else at the expense of anybody's life or orders. Yeah. And so we figure out there's one. So here's a funny thing. So the computers of the ship's name is mother. I've always, I've always really liked that. You know, the, the, the person in charge is mother and that dips into some, some Freudian behavior of, of, of all of this again, in terms of like, um, child, parent relations um i'm just gonna give everyone a warning right now i am gonna dive deep into this movie it's one of my favorite films and i apologize but uh uh so we figure out that the orders from the Wayland dutani corporation who this vessel belongs to this spaceship belongs to uh has given the order to ash that again the only priority is to return this alien creature back to earth back to Wayland dutani it's speculated and it's heavily implied for their weapons division. And, um, and then we figure out, yeah, that Ash is an Android. And like I said, he's this character that when you have seen the film and you know what he's going to do, just watch every scene he's in, watch his eyes and watch the way he's studying and analyzing and hiding things. Like when he's analyzing the embryo inside of Kane's chest and, and Ripley comes up, he turns off the TV, you know, so she can't, she can't piece it together and he's just this sneaky little rat in the background and um but it's what i always find funny too is that he's an android and he's okay with violence and he's okay with death but he was built in the image of mankind and that's an interesting philosophy if you think about it because does that mean this is his interpretation of mankind is to be able to do these things and I think that's kind of his part of his kind of like short circuitry because when he's beating up Ripley at one point in the film, kind of when she starts calling him on his bullshit and she figures out this order, he's kind of breaking down. And I've always felt like it's because there's this weird internal quote unquote morality inside of him that is like not computing. Um, but then again, going into the themes of sexuality, the horrors of sexuality is that like you know, he tries to use a tube of a paper roll and suffocate her with it, you know? So it's like, and there's yeah. even like, <laughs> there's even images of like naked women yeah. on the wall as he's doing this. And again, it's that idea of like sexual oppression on men and women, but I think it's more felt in the women in this film um, than the men. Well, the men like, are... well, well, it's a unique film in that a, a woman is actually in a position of authority. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. And, um, but that's the one thing that I love about this film is that it was one of the first films to make a really powerful, strong woman lead where there are issues of her being a woman that are brought up that aren't just like quickly talked about, but then brushed under the rug. It's, it's, yep. it's there. You feel it in the whole entire movie. And, um, what's kind of cool with this movie too, is that actually the script was written, uh, that all the characters in the movie could be played by anybody, man or woman. Um, and I just think that they did a good job then by casting Sigourney Weaver as, as Ripley, as the main. Yeah. Um, because she does a great job. She's very believable. She's probably the most believable part in this whole movie, in my opinion. Because, like... Absolutely. Like, her responses, her responses and actions and everything, they're, 
they're incredibly realistic. Yeah. And because I like I like Tom Skerritt, but I kind of every time I watch this, I always feel like he's kind of just phoning it in just a little <laughs> bit. He's just like, yeah, I'm getting paid. I'm just here. OK. Um, and then Ian Holm as Ash. Yeah, he's he's miraculous. He's like, I said, in my opinion, I think he's like the most interesting part of this whole film. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I've always felt too, like, if you look at like, um, like if you look at the shapes of, of, of everything in this world, like, uh, when they enter the, the, the derelict ship going into where the alien eggs are, like those holes in the ship that they're going in resemble a <laughs> vagina very heavily. Um, Again, we talked about the alien head. We talked about this face hugger that grabs onto you and it shoots an embryo down your throat. It's a little proboscis. Exactly. Against your will and it impregnates you against your will. And then, again, it gives birth to this phallical-looking creature out of your chest. And it's just like, when you look at it that way, I think it's like a hundred trillion times more scary. Because it, it enters your subconscious and it stays with you. Like... This is a movie that, like, a lot of times, uh, whenever I watch it, I always end up having really peculiar dreams. Not nightmares, but, like, my dreams are always a little bit more bizarre the night that I watch this movie. Like, my dreams usually are a little bit more involved with, like, shapes and, like, blackness and, like, darkness. And that's what this film will do. It really gets under your skin in a lot of in a lot of ways, and it it plays on it plays really well on human anxieties, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like even even the anxieties that are just ever present in our in our daily lives now that we're constantly confronting. Like it's like uh, and it makes them really scary. And I think that's like that's what science fiction and horror do really well is that they allow opportunities to explore these like prescient issues in like a different way and like uncover like themes and feelings and it's like and and they're they're very like cognizantly critiques of critiques of uh of contemporary life and their life at the time and but using like uh just using a different medium to get at them and critique them. And um, I don't know about you, but I like horror movies are a hit or miss for me. Like I don't like um, I don't like gory horror movies. Like just gross, just for the sake of being gross. Um, so you didn't you didn't like the six hours of Saw? <laughs> yeah, I like the first one. I did. I do remember liking the first one, but I remember that third one. Yeah, I. Oh my god, I I snapped a little bit. I think I died a little bit that night. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but this film is like a masterclass at building dread. That's the thing that I like in horror movies is dread. That feeling that. Uh, you know, a lot of horror movies now are either, yeah, like gore fest and or just loud screech noises where it's like, it's not actually scary. They just startled you. And I hate, I hate that shit so much. And this movie is about dread where like, there's this creature right around the corner. It's dark and you don't understand it and you don't know why it's really here. And, um, you're alone, you're vulnerable. Exactly. And that it's just, oh, it's just like, like, um, are you, are, are you into horror? Are you a horror buff or anything like that? Uh, for the same reasons as you, I, I, I don't like explicitly gory things and, or just for the, and just the jump stuff. I like, 
I like the psychological, I like the psychological things that really kind of get under your skin. And like, and like, uh, like you were saying, uh, last week you had mentioned about how constraints make film like more scary when you're talking about like that Batman film when, uh, and obviously you couldn't show, um, a character falling onto a car and dying. So instead they, they took the avenue of just being inside the perspective from inside the car and seeing the car dent. And I think, again, that's the thing that makes this film really scary is like Ridley Scott really takes, he really takes a lot, makes a lot of care to like not reveal too much about the alien or reveal it in the form because like it's, I mean, the, the I mean, even by today's standards, that alien is like, pretty scary but the but but the fact that you can't see it uh that, that it leaves a lot of it to your imagination throughout the whole film really like uh really gets under your skin yeah a lot of a lot of this movie is your imagination which hitchcock you know um he was the master of that you know uh, obviously you know like psycho was a great uh example of the, the showers you don't see anything but that seems fucking terrifying and um yeah, no, that definitely is in this film as well, where it's what's implied and it's what that's not seen is, is more scary. And it's a, it's like a two-hour-plus movie, and I think the alien is only in, like, two and a half minutes of the whole movie. Um, but it's it's its presence is memorable, and it's, it's done well. Um, uh, fun little fact, so there's the, there's the famous chestburster scene. Uh, where the the alien creature living inside of the character Kane, played by John Hurt, who is a damn good actor, who is no longer with us, um, phenomenal actor, uh, uh, it bursts out of his chest. It's probably the most iconic scene in the movie, and definitely in cinema history. Yeah, I was uh, the first time I watched this film. I think I was nine years old, maybe eleven, maybe eleven, and so it was like the first horror film I had ever watched. I can't remember if Candyman or this came first. So Candyman, Shout Out Chicago, also got a remake. Haven't watched it yet. But um, an Alien would have been close behind that. And I remember like that, that scene, was uh, as a 9-year-old kid or an 11-year-old kid, it is, a, it is a disturbing scene. Dude, it'll fuck you up, man. Um, it'll fuck you up so much that actually um, when it came to theaters, um, movie laws in the 70s are a lot different than what they are now that shit in the 70s was the wild west people could do whatever the fuck they wanted in the 70s like you know how many animals died in the 70s for some of our like greatest films ever made like it's it's a staggering amount like shit you could not get away with now but um what i'm getting at is film theaters today if you cut out one frame out of a movie your license with your contract with that distributing company is gone forever and you'll never play a film from them till the end of time. Uh, and when this film came out in 1979, people were throwing up in the audience and theaters were losing their money. People were getting up and leaving the, the theater at the chestburster scene. I mean, it's that intense. And um, there were interviews with uh, people from Fox that said they would go to these theaters and, um, and interview like people like the the owners of these theaters and like dudes would just be like these guys would be like yeah I just cut that scene out because it they got the film reel so they would just take scissors and just snip out the whole chestburster scene and then play the movie so then audiences were confused as fuck as to how <laughs> like what happened to John Hurt and how is this alien on board but the owners of these theaters were like well we need to sell popcorn and candy and make money and your movie is not <laughs> helping with that at all 
Um, which is kind of funny because I could not imagine watching this movie without seeing that scene. But um, yeah, I would say, I, if anything, that is that is the scene that will stay with you for a long, long time. It's it's because like, I, like if you've ever been underwater like a minute, like a like a few seconds too long, and you feel that pain, like you know, I was a swimmer when I was in high school, so that's what I think about is like. <laughs> that water in your lungs feeling and it's terrifying and take that and multiply it by 10 trillion and that's what this character is going through yeah the other thing i really appreciate about that scene is that uh is is the the reactions of the actors was was legitimate because uh i know ridley scott like every, everybody around the table knew something was going to happen and they knew uh this chest buster was going to come out of john hurt but nobody expected the amount of blood and guts and gore that actually like came out of him so like <laughs> Like it sprayed everywhere. No one was expecting it, and like these responses were like legitimate on screen. And that like the um, there's a super quick cutaway, super quick to Veronica Cartwright who plays Lambert. Um, she gets splattered right in the face with fake blood. Yeah, right in the face, right in the eyeballs, and she throws her hands up and she is screaming, and that is 100 percent real because yeah, she had no idea it was coming, and it's actually funny. If you ever, you can look it up on YouTube. the The actual clip of it is she gets hit in the face, she screams, and then she actually slips on the fake blood and falls down. It's actually kind of funny because it's just kind of comical in nature. So they cut it. I mean, on the, is they held it for literally as long as they could before they cut away from it. But a lot of those reactions, yeah, are very real. And um, and that's another thing too that Ridley Scott did is so he built this ship. You could walk around the set as a real thing and one thing that Ridley Scott wanted to do was to actually have all the actors sleep on the ship and live together during the entire production to really get that sense of like we're crammed in this vessel together um yeah but uh the i think it was the insurance company was like nope <laughs> <laughs> sleeping on a movie set with you know huge megawatt lights is not a safe idea um so they did that but they did do a lot of things where um he like screwed with the actors a lot in this movie and um uh in, in like a couple interviews with uh Yafet Koto who plays Parker one thing was that Ridley Scott told him to always like kind of pick on and kind of make fun of Sigourney Weaver off like when they weren't recording like in between takes and like offset just so they could build that tension um and it's kind of funny because later uh Yafet Koda would actually like claim that he regrets doing that because like you know Sigourney Weaver is like a great person she's like supposed to be like really friendly and really nice and he just like kind of felt terrible for doing that yeah and then he would do things like he would turn up the the heat because they're already under the scrutiny of these huge lights and they actually turned up the heat so like a lot of that sweat in that movie that shit's real it's legitimate yeah like there those there's a scene where uh Parker is uh, he's just like, all I want to do is kill the creature. And, and Sigourney Reaver just, she just goes, will you shut up? Will you just shut up? And like, that shit's real. There was a real tension on this set. And there are people that argue that, you know, stuff like that is good because it can help get actors into character and in the scene. But then there's people that argue like it's not healthy. Um, it's psychological abuse. Exactly. I'm not an actor nor a director, so I don't know the answer to that because I have not been in either. I'm a fucking animator who sits in a dark room by himself and nobody wants to talk to. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it's definitely it's a masterclass of of filmmaking and like like the the lighting and like the color correction in this movie. Yeah. Like one thing a lot of people talk about, I hear even in like today's like TVs and everything, like um, you know, all these OLED screens are coming out. And all these people are talking about how like the blacks are like really rich. The color black is just such a rich density to it. And this film, the lighting and how they pull that off is insane. Like when Dallas, Tom Skerritt's character is crawling through those vents and the only light in the whole fucking room is from his flamethrower. And it looks, there's like yeah. no film green. There's not like one dot of film green in that whole thing. And I'm like, how the fuck did you do this? Like, this is insane. <laughs> I have to go back and watch the original, like the original, because I, 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 presumably the one I watched is the digitally remastered one, <laughs> and it wouldn't have that same grain as it did on the when I watched it on VHS when I was, well, <laughs> when I was like nine or eleven or however old I was. But um, did, did you watch? Do you know? Did you watch? Um, did you watch the theatrical cut or the director's cut? Oh, I I just I rented whatever one was on uh, was on Cineplex on the Cineplex or on our Canadian film distributor app. Was there a scene where uh, Ripley finds Dallas and Brett and they're being cocooned into eggs? Oh, I forgot about that. I know I definitely didn't watch that. Okay, then, that was, then you watched the theatrical cut. Yeah, because in the director's cut, it's kind of funny because the director's cut never came out. And then they came out with Aliens where they answered a little bit to the question of how are those eggs made with the Queen alien in, in Aliens, the sequel. Um, and then the director's cut came out for, I think it was the 25th or maybe the 25th or the 30th anniversary, something like that. And it was this really cool DVD set that came out in, I think 2009 and, um, and that's where the director's cut came out and it kind of fucked with the canon a little bit because it kind of gave the idea that the alien could harvest and cocoon humans and turn them into an egg, like as an emergency situation right. kind of a thing. Um, but anyway, that's in the director's cut. But the, and I actually like the theatrical cut more, except in the director's cut, there's a scene where Brett goes into the room where the water is dripping from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And there's one shot, and maybe it's in the theatrical cut. I could be wrong, but I think it's only in the director's cut where it cuts, the, 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 the film cuts up into the chains, these dangling chains from the ceiling of the water dripping, and it shows the alien, and it's curled up in a ball, and it's just swinging left to right. And, like, you don't even notice it unless you know what you're looking for. You know, if it was the first time oh, you watched the yeah. film, I don't think anyone would ever notice it. And it's like, uh, oh. Yeah. I, I remember that shot, but I, I definitely didn't catch the alien sitting there. I knew it was up there, obviously, but. Oh, so uh, fucking amazing. Goddamn, just goosebumps every time I see it. I'm like, oh, my God, that's the shit. So, um, uh, and I just gotta, you got to really got to give credit to uh the actor who played who like wore the alien suit uh just it was like uh what was it Bolaji Bolaji Badejo Badejo yeah Badejo and he just like he he really just owned <laughs> owned the alien it was like he brought this like elegance and grace to it that was just like uh to it that was just incredibly frightening yeah I know he does a great job there's a um there's a video on YouTube uh, if you're ever bored some time, type in alien, uh, like, test shots. Um, so before the suit was made, they just built a really quick, 
like rubber helmet in the shape of the alien head. So it's not as detailed as it is in the final movie. But I think he's just wearing like black tights and he just walks into a room and then just squats on his knees and it's fucking terrifying. It's not even in the movie, obviously. It was just a test screening to kind of get, you know, the the suits on board that this is the guy to, to play the alien creature. And, um, and that's an art in of itself that I don't think a lot of people respect is that, you know... The, the suited creatures of, like, the 80s are not done anymore because now it's all, you know, CGI and, you know, computer animation. But, like, those people that wore those suits for those movies, like, they did a good fucking job. Like, Predator is another one that I think about where you have to come up with, like, you know, you, it's still acting. It's just there's no dialogue. And, uh, but, yeah, no, I agree. And it's kind of cool because the, the guy... Uh, Bellagio is like six feet ten inches and I think the story is that like Ridley Scott is like some of the people were like at a pub and they just saw him at a pub and they were like you want to be in a movie and he was like okay and that was it I think that I'm pretty certain this is his only acting credit because he's not an actor he just was six feet ten inches and insanely skinny so it just worked out perfectly for him so well then we could talk about are you familiar so how, like are you familiar with Giger I'm only a little bit like only a little bit. I know he was a because I, I probably uh, I, I only started reading a little bit about it in preparation for this podcast. But like, yeah, he's a he's a Swiss. Was he an illustrator primarily? Because he 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 created a lot of really like disturbing imagery in his day. And uh, yeah, he, um, he has a book uh, called the Necrocomicon, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy is he's very interesting. But he, I'm just gonna be real. He's weird. I think he's weird in a good way. I say that as a positive thing. I think being weird can be good and acceptable in this lifetime. And the dude was weird. But, yeah, he has these drawings. Uh, if you ever just Google H.R. Giger, you're, you're not going to regret it. it. You can look at his artwork for hours because it's, it's, it's what inspired the creature. I mean, he, they brought him on to design the, 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 the derelict ship, the eggs the facehugger and the alien creature and what we know is the space jockey the creature that's sitting in the chair um he got to design it and that's another cool aspect with this movie is that they hired Giger to create all the alien stuff and I can't I'm sorry I can't remember his name they hired somebody else to design all the human stuff and I think that's really cool and I think more people should do that in modern films have two people work on two different parts of the film because then it's this real clash of like one person's technology versus another person's technology and this film fucking is awesome at that like when you're in that derelict ship it doesn't feel human at all it doesn't look like anything else in the whole film you know so when when i was uh researching this guy because uh as a as a as a designer and like almost architect uh I know there's a there's a school of architecture that's based in uh, in Switzerland where Giger is from, and I was like I was really surprised. And a lot of like that's kind of architecture that just never happened in North America, but uh, it's beautiful architecture nonetheless. And I, w- I was surprised to learn that he was from that uh, he was basically from that uh, canton in Switzerland with like that culture of design around them too. And I mean he's way out of left field from uh, from those kind of designers, but it was interesting this particular canton in switzerland seems to breathe like this crazy uh brand of like creativity and approach to 
approach to worlds and spaces and and stuff, and it's really fascinating. So I definitely want to I definitely want to dig more into his work now that I've but now that I've made this connection and even even see if there's any architects in in that canton that actually were fr- either friends with him or drew influence. Oh, I would imagine there's from a, him in some way or another. There's a bar and restaurant somewhere around where he lived. I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. There's a it's a whole it's a whole building uh, dedicated to him. Like the chairs and the the walls and the doors, everything is his designs and his shapes. And I highly recommend checking it out. It's I don't know if I could ever go to it because I'd probably be weirded out. Like I don't know if that's like in my comfort wheel, but um, it's really cool. And um, and yeah, he he's unfortunately passed on. There's a documentary about Giger. Um, I have shit. I am blanking on the name of it. Um, you can just Google HR Giger documentary. Uh, it's really good. Giger Sanctuary. Yeah. And um, uh, he was a very interesting fellow. He uh, There's a story where uh, Dan O'Bannon... Dan O'Bannon is... There's a lot of writing credits involved in the Alien universe, but it is Dan O'Bannon's... Ultimately, at the end of the day, he was a very good writer... Um, and there's a story that, uh, Dan O'Bannon got to meet Giger before Ridley Scott did. Um, uh, Dan O'Bannon had a friend living in France and he said, you got to come to France. You have to see this art gallery. I think as a science fiction writer, you're going to, you're going to love this guy. And so Dan O'Bannon went to France and it was an H.R. Giger, um, uh, studio show. And he got to meet Giger after the show and Giger offered him opium. (laughs) <laughs> and Dan O'Bannon said, no, thank you. Like, I'm, I'm okay. And he goes, I'm just curious, you know, why, why do you take it? And Giger said something to the effect of like, like I, I, I'm terrified of my own visions. Like I'm terrified of, of what I see in my head. And opium is the only thing that'll like calm me down. And it's like, yeah, if you're that deep in dude, like I'd probably be smoking opium too, you know, like, <laughs> Oh man, I'd be I'd be worried that opium would exacerbate it. See, that's yeah, I don't yeah, I guess I don't know. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe it, it feeds him it feeds it fed him what he needed. I don't know, but yeah. um but yeah, there's like photos of him on on the movie set and, and videos and interviews with him and he's just I'm not gonna imitate his accent to be respectful to people of this world I don't want to, but um he's got a very thick accent and just his characterisms and his, his mannerisms uh, he's just this like presence on set he, he always wore like black leather and like black clothes and black scarves and and just him being on set and like shaping and working on the artwork that go down this movie it you can just tell he gave it like a hundred and you know 110 percent and um you know i think it shows because the art design of this movie is insane um everything just feels so real like at the end it's of the, it's hard to find even something like a, a contemporary film that's that's that convincing. Yeah, it it just feels you don't question it at any point. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like I feel like the design and the way they present the ship is kind of confusing because you don't really know what's like the mini ship versus the larger ship. But I think that's the point is to kind of really disorient you, the viewer, because there's white clean areas that are padded and soft and then there's these mechanical areas where wires are exposed and 
copper and metal and jagged sharp edges and sparks and lights and it's fucking terrifying and we have to go between the two and they do it seamlessly you know like it all feels coherent sexuality of it all here we go i'm gonna be prepared uh is the the opening the opening of the film uh the camera is moving around the ship uh and that whole sequence i love like there's like a breeze that goes through the ship and like moves these like scientist jackets on the wall it's like where's that breeze coming from there's a lot of little things like that yeah and um we go into the cryo sleep chamber and so here's another thing everything is white everything is pure everything is soft everything is rounded there's pads it's beautiful, it's serene, and like virginity, they're entering a new world, right? They're all white, everything is heavenly and pure. Even the cryo tubes yeah, look yeah. like flowers, and the petals of the flowers rise up and introduce our characters into this new world that they're about to embark on. But my favorite thing in that whole scene, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, so first of all, Kane is the first person to wake up, and he's the person that's going to get hit with the face hugger. And if you look down and left from his cryo bed, is a symbol. There's a lot of symbols in this movie that are used on the spaceship to help people that maybe don't speak English to help find and navigate their way around the ship, like a universal signs. Yep. If you look at the symbol next to John Hurt as he wakes up, it's a person lying on their back with a triangle emerging from their chest. It's fucking beautiful. It's it's Wow, I didn't know that. Yep. And it's just like there's so many little details like that like the art direction in this movie is insane. Everybody gave 110% to this film. And um so and then and then and then John Hurt's the first person to wake up. So again, it's like your mind can connect that that we see a person with a triangle coming out of his chest and John Hurt is the first one to wake up in the beautiful flowery <laughs> virgin white room. <laughs> and, um, Oh God, there's so many, there, there's so many, Oh, there's so many little things like that in the movie. Like, um, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and have to watch it for all these Easter eggs again once. Cause I've, I've never actually looked at it, looked at it, uh, from that perspective. Oh, dude, there's so many things, like, I, I, I have, I have watched this movie on my computer, uh, and, like, I've literally paused it, and on my keyboard clicked left and right to, like, just look at frames, um, if you're ever bored again sometime, and you have the ability to go through <laughs> frame by frame, there is, uh, when Kane is looking in the alien egg, and the facehugger comes out, you know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. We cut to... We cut to a POV of the face hugger attaching to his helmet, and I think it's a total of six frames, but there's even a cut inside of it of how this thing attaches to its mask, and then it cuts to a crack in the helmet, and then you see just this like disgusting organ just whipping as fast as you can towards the camera and it's like less than a yeah. second and if you go through it frame by frame and here's another thing too about the alien creature that i think we could talk about is like it's terrifying 
It's also kind of sexy, but it's also hyper intriguing. You know what I mean? Like, like you want to look at the alien creature. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you want to see more of it. And it's kind of the only monster that I can think of that you really want. Like, I want to see more of the alien creature every time I see this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's pretty cool if you ask me, but, uh, yeah, if you're if you ever have the opportunity, go frame by frame in that POV shot of the face like you're grabbing onto to Kane's mask, and it'll it'll ruin your day. But you'll you'll you'll, you'll appreciate it. So, yeah, I think I remember reading something about that. They actually like, I mean, there was a hose, and they'd actually like run like pressurized air through it or something, didn't they? For some of it, and then there was also yeah. there's a lot of like, um, they did a lot of reverse uh editing where so they would actually they pulled it off of his helmet for a couple takes and then reversed it so it would snap on to the helmet and again this is all like super quick you it would, just like the blind eye won't even notice it and then um a lot of it too because there's even another shot where it comes out of the uh alien egg and that's actually Ridley Scott with his hand under the egg pushing it out with the actual his hand it was a hand puppet um which is kind of cool and they do a lot of unique tricks. One of them, uh, to be fair, I, I can't sit here and say that the only good things about this movie. The the worst thing of this movie is when Ash's head is on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like this like really dumb doll head. And I think it's I think it's Lambert is like trying to have the head stand up right. And then it just yep. cuts. And then there's Ian Holmes' head. And I mean, like, you can't not miss it. It's impossible not to see it. And, like, what I find so funny is, like, couldn't you have had, like, one of the characters walk in front of the camera and then cut and then have them walk off the camera and then Ian Holmes' yeah. head is there? It just straight up cuts. And I've always <laughs> I've always wanted to know why. Like, maybe that was literally their only option. If I had to guess and put money on it, that would be my guess, is that there was literally no other option. I don't know. It's just kind of funny, though. There's this big rubber fucking head that's, like, smiling at you, and then it just cuts, and there's Ian Holmes' head, which you can tell is, like, <laughs> his body's under the table. You know, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember what, what it was. I, I remember reading something the other day now. That they exactly There was some problem with using the animatronic head, and they ended up having to... You, you, uh, use him... Like, use, his, use him being under the table as a solution i can't remember what it was off the top of my head now but it probably just was like robotic just weren't there yet you know it's 1979 but um i mean they did such a great job of like uh of like imagining the insides of him like between like i know i can't think like the tubing and the goop and the wire and like the and the optic cables and all this kind of stuff it's like Man, that's a pretty interesting. I could uh, I could imagine that being being in a in an android. Yeah, it's that blend because like robots in movies at that point had always just been like purely mechanical, and this was the introduction of like organic mechanical, which is an android, which is pretty interesting. Um, another little fun fact: those are anal beads that are crammed into his throat. I know that's what a lot of people are wondering. <laughs> and see, it goes everything goes back into sexuality. The 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 when Dallas is in the air vent and he puts his hand in the drool, that's KY jelly. I'm dead serious. I'm not making any yeah. of this no, up. No, yeah, I knew it was KY jelly. Oh, that's so funny. The inner jaw of the alien creature is literally made up of uh, condoms. I mean, it's like they went 
full 100% into the horrors of sexuality. Um, another thing, though, with this film that I love that I think is held up really well is um, the computer graphics when they're typing on the computer. Yep. I, I, it, you know, there's some like vector images, some vector art that they use for like the spatial stuff, but like the numbers and the type and how it's presented. I know that sounds really small and minuscule, but I love it. And I think it's held up. I think that it still looks good today. Um, again, goes back into that art direction. It's fucking spot on. I always love like what people thought computers were going to be. So like, Imagine if, like, your computer room looked like the mother room with all the white lights. Like, imagine if we had, <laughs> imagine if we had to do that. Like, hey, babe, I'm gonna go play Call of Duty. I'm gonna go in the dude, mother room and shut the door behind me. Dude, that's where I'm doing my call from right now. <laughs> Just sitting in this white room with eight trillion <laughs> lights around you. Yeah. But yeah, back to your point about like the technology, the computer graphics in there. I think. I, I think that's worth pointing out because like at the time, like it, it's sufficiently futuristic that it's believable and like, and, uh, and like actual technology hadn't progressed so far that that seemed outdated in any way. But now, but now if you look at like any, the concept behind that kind of technology now in contemporary films hasn't made any leaps, hasn't, it, it maybe looks a little bit better, but it hasn't, leapt into anything new that we haven't thought of yet and so it's kind of like a continuation of that same lineage and i remember i remember like george lucas pointing this out in like a, in star wars it's like his whole and, and 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 especially with like his second trilogy which uh, i don't want to talk about at all but um <laughs> and for the record there's only one good star wars film a couple mediocre ones and the rest are bad. Yeah, yeah just just to, just to start a war in your comments oh right yeah <laughs> no i I've, I've i've talked about star wars and other uh, things as well but yeah no i i agree but yes yeah, anyway yeah but but the point that i was getting to is like George Lucas always tried to build a world that people hadn't imagined and like show people things that like they hadn't thought of or like hadn't yet have experienced like new worlds and new ideas and like, and like um, the computer graphics at the time were, were like, oh, well, in the first trilogy, he used like puppets to like great effect and like small and actual scale models. And then like CGI wasn't quite there for the, uh, for his third trilogy or second trilogy, but technology, like, modern technology has progressed so far that finding a way to represent it in a, in a unique way in, in contemporary science fiction is really hard. It is really hard. Um, I want to add on to your point really quick about George Lucas just really quick is that, um, yeah, one thing that he was a huge uh, fan of, it was in science fiction was like the used, the, the used feeling. Like if you watch, the first two Star Wars films, everything has like scuff marks on the floor and the clothes are like wrinkled yeah. and dirty and it feels like it's been used because it would be. When you're on a spaceship, you're walking the same floors day after day. They're going to get dirty. And um, fun little fact, it's funny that you mentioned Star Wars really quick. Uh, Star Wars is actually probably the reason Alien got made. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dan O'Bannon was pushing really hard for this to get funded um, and Fox was always kind of in and out on the situation. And then Star Wars came out. It was a huge hit. And all of a sudden, science fiction was huge. And uh, one of the suits at Fox was basically like, 
we need another spaceship movie. And they were like, hey, we have this script called Alien. And that's how it got, That's that was it right there. So yeah. thank you for Star Wars for making one of my favorite films. So thank you. Appreciate it. But, um, but no, what you're going back to with saying like uh, technology to be represented in 2021, like I don't, have you seen Alien Covenant, the most recent Alien film? I have, but I don't remember it. Uh, <laughs> what's really? Uh, I remember. I remember going to it, but and I was really excited about it. But uh, it obviously didn't make a huge impression. But uh, but but now that we started watching, uh, now that we've watched Alien, uh, we, we started watching Aliens, and I think we're going to make ourselves make our way through the whole universe again, regardless of uh, regardless of the films. And there's some interesting things. You know, uh, I think, like I said earlier, Prometheus was probably the reason why I went back to start watching this again. And in the course of this, there was uh, some things that I hadn't noticed in Prometheus that I, I want to go investigate again. And, uh, and and so maybe I'll get to Alien Covenant and see how things end up happening. But um, well, And it's funny because like, a lot of people have brought that up of like um, the technology in Prometheus and Alien Covenant is like a hundred times better than in Alien. And those films are prequels yeah. uh but i think that also lends itself to the corporate structure that alien finds itself in which is that like this company has given them the shittiest ship like yeah the better technology exists but they they're just fucking mining gas so just give them the shittiest yeah. ship that they've got you know like the ship might be like a super old model for them that they don't even fucking use anymore and they're like here go make some money go go mine some gas and come back to earth and make a fraction of what we're going to make on top of it. And, um, and so I think that's kind of in a way held up in the whole story of the alien lineage is like, that's kind of how I perceive it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like the other alien films. I do. I like all of them. AVP. They're totally different. They're, they're totally, totally different. They're totally different. And each one, the thing that I like about alien and the, especially the first three is that the alien represents something different in all three of the original movies. Like the first one is like sexuality and horror. The second one is like motherhood and family. And then the third one, which is an underrated film, I've always kind of felt like it's a religious symbol, but, um, if you if you're rewatching the films, and I'll say this to anybody, give Alien Three a second chance. And if you have the opportunity, watch the assembly cut. Um, it's worth it. It's a very different film. Um, the problem with the assembly cut is that it has major audio issues because they couldn't go back and like do ADR on the actors to re-record their scenes. Um, so there's major audio issues in the film. But if you have the chance to watch it, I would recommend watching it. It's pretty good. Um, but it was still overall a disappointment to the end of Ripley's story because I know there's a fourth one, but that one is that movie's fun. Like watching the room is fun. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, I guess do you have a do you have a favorite out of out of the whole series? Uh, I mean, it's it's oh, it's going to be Alien or Prometheus, a hundred percent. I'm not going to be able to elaborate too much on it because I have to. They, the last time I watched any of them, besides Alien, was just too far, too long ago. But uh, I, I, I really appreciated um, a bit more of like like Prometheus's approach, like building the mythology in the universe, like pre-Alien and uh, pre-Nostromo, and like kind of like 
and just and filling in a lot of those gaps. And there, there's this uh, uh, before I w- went to architecture school, after film school, and before uh, and working for video games, I went to school for linguistics at UBC. And uh, and so there's a this is just like a, a nerdy linguistics thing. I even mentioned it. Well, I kind of mentioned it in Arrival too, and why I like uh, why I liked Arrival last week because uh, it's very linguistically oriented. But anyway, there's this uh, there's this theory that um, uh, you know, all contemporary Indo-European languages like uh, English, German, uh, Hindi, uh, Hindi, Urdu, uh, Italian, French, uh, Dutch. Uh, all came from like a common family ancestor and uh and it's been it's fairly it's fairly well accepted this common ancestor existed because like it would have been a single a single language that kind of as geographical as people and populations spread out uh dialects would have become different enough to evolve into old languages or into distinct languages and you can fairly reliably construct this back to a, a, a common language for all of these contemporary uh, Western or European languages. And uh, it's called like Proto-Indo-European. And, and uh, that's what Prometheus, that's what uh, Prometheus or uh, the alien engineer is speaking to um, Michael Fassbender's character in, in the film at the beginning, which I think is really fascinating because it's a, because I know they like created that language just for that alien creature in that film, and it is super interesting. It's really cool. But it wasn't just created. It's like a. It's like, it's academically accepted. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, it's like so. It's like historical. So it's the it's the spec it's a reconstru- it's a it's a speculative reconstruction of what that of what the common ancestor of contemporary uh european indo-european languages would have sounded like before they became the languages that we know now gotcha that's really interesting i didn't know that that's really cool yep so uh but i I don't recall much about the other films alien is definitely like of all the ones i've watched it was great alien was aliens versus cowboys was that that was that part of this this world or not no this universe no there was alien versus predator um but the fans myself included do not consider AVP one or two canon to the alien series. Cause there's things that in the alien timeline don't make sense because of those films, but those films are shit. Those films are they're Again, they're fun to watch, but they are cheesy as fuck. You can't. It's bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. One other thing that I like in the theme then of like Prometheus and Alien is kind of, I was talking about it a little bit earlier, is like there's there's the causal argument, the, um, the argument of, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, yeah the argument of, you know, where we come from. And so one thing that I like is, again, the androids in this universe have violent tendencies, but they were built in the image of man. And then man was, according to the alien lore, was built in the image then of these um, engineers, as we call them, that kind of has become their nickname, who then in itself are violent creatures. And I kind of like that idea where, like, 
if your creator is violent, again, it kind of goes back into the parenting theme as well. If your creator is violent, then violence is going to be passed on. And that, I think, then stems into the ideology of the alien creature itself. That's why these androids keep calling it the perfect organism, because it's not clouded by morality. It's just this thing that is structurally designed for survival by any means necessary. And um, I think that's a really cool concept, in my opinion, that like because the other films have explored its origins and it's built in a history of like violence and angry people. And I think that's kind of cool, you know, like a lot of movies, especially horror movies are like, it's a demon and that's why it's so angry, you know, like, but this has like a little <laughs> bit of a scientific explanation. Uh, not one that everybody agrees with. Cause I know a lot of fans are not happy with the modern movies and I can understand why, but you know, I like them still. I think they're fun. They're, um, if you want to get into some real, real cheese and ham of the Alien franchise, uh, read some of the modern comic books because uh, I think, I don't know if you know this, but Disney owns Alien now. <laughs> I didn't. Oh, man, that is frightening. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's it's really weird to think about. Uh, a lot of people have made jokes that, like, the alien queen should be added to the Disney princesses like <laughs> like lineup. Like she should be standing right next to Jasmine and Aladdin. And um and I agree wholeheartedly. I'd love to see that movie. But um Aladdin versus Alien. There we go. That's our next franchise. But um uh oh, man. yeah some of these modern so Marvel is now coming out with alien comic books and they're not bad. I've actually read worse Alien comics because there's a ton of comics. A ton. Um, some of them are pretty good. Some of them are really bad. And these new ones are, they're kind of cheesy. They just keep like making references to Aliens because that's like the fan favorite movie, but it doesn't make sense contextually. Like there's a, there's like a, there's like a Marine at one point who is like, He's like, I always used to tell my daughter that monsters weren't real, but now they're real. And that's what Newt says in Aliens. And I'm like, why are you saying this? Like, it doesn't make sense in the scene of what's going on. But it made sense when Newt said it because she's going through the motions as a little girl. I don't know. It was so weird. But, um, but yeah, anyway, Alien. Um, I think the uh, one other thing that I see I wanted to just touch on really quick, and then we're, we're done with it, is... Uh, is uh, Lambert's death. Lambert is Veronica Cartwright, the other female of the crew, because we were kind of talking about this earlier in the film. So everyone else dies, right? Or is, like, taken in some capacity. Like, we don't see what happens to Dallas. He just gets grabbed in the air duct, and that's the end of it. We know that Brett most likely has died because he gets bit, you know, and then taken up into the air shaft. And, um... uh, But uh, Veronica Cartwright's death and this is what i was talking about earlier the themes of like the horrors of sexuality uh her character if you watch the movie the alien is like standing in front of her originally it was cut from the movie the alien was going to be walking on its hands and legs with its back facing the ground and its tail between its legs pointed right at her um that is very on the nose in terms of that theme, but they ended up getting rid of that and it just stands in front of her. Uh, um, and then Parker comes in and he tries to attack the creature. The creature kills him and then he goes back to Lambert. 
And her death is kind of interesting. I think out of all the deaths in the movie, it is the most bizarre and frightening because all we see is her crying, as anyone would be in this situation, and terrified. And we cut to the alien's tail crawling up her leg. And then we cut back to Ripley and you hear her screaming and you hear the most terrifying gagging noise that you'll probably ever hear in an entire movie and then Ripley finds Lambert and she's hung up on something all we see is her feet and there's blood dripping and her shoe is off And this is kind of what I'm talking about, again, like the themes of the horrors of sexuality and rape, because it's like, what did the alien do to her? Right. Just something to think about as you can ponder, because I don't want to get into it because that's not what I'm here for. But I think that I have an answer in my head, and I think that the film, when you notice it, it's something that upon your next viewing... I would suggest anyone to just seriously take a minute to think about because I think it's interesting. I don't, you know, I'm not saying it's great. I'm just saying it's interesting. And um, it's definitely, I think that and the whole movie to me is probably like the most terrifying thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a little, it's pretty grotesque. But I think that's, again, like in terms of horror, see, that is more dreadful and terrifying than the spooky spider clown of it chapter two chasing bill Hader around making jokes you know like yeah you can't hold some of these modern day horror films you can't hold a light to alien it's a great film um it's interesting hearing hearing your uh the lens you view it through because uh, i had never considered it from i mean i'd never considered it from from the uh sexual perspective from a sexual perspective which totally makes sense and I think it's totally legitimate, but, and, and like, I, I watch it from like a, and I, I can't remember if I mentioned it already, but like a, from like as a critique of capitalism and, and, uh, and um, class inequality and whatnot. And, and I think it's getting, I think it's getting there too. Cause I, what we were talking uh, before the, before the podcast where like, I know here, here we are out in space and uh, well, you, you notice the hierarchy in, in the crew, like between, uh, sorry, I have to remember their names real quick. Um, between uh, Brett and Park, Parker, yeah, uh, they're they're the, they're, they're the two uh, just kind of blue collar crew guys, right? Yeah, yeah, they're like they're the ones down in the basement repairing the ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one listens to them, and they're always kind of like brushed off as like unimportant and not super valuable, just there for like grunt labor. They're not in, in allowed really in the in the pristine command center of like Mother when they're like sending messages back and like the white spaces and whatnot. And then, and so there's this class and there's this like class inequality there, but then there's this idea, there's this extrapolation of like capitalist mechanism that occurs on, on earth. And it's all about capitalism is all about inter like internalizing the external and like exploiting resources and creating surplus value through like infinite expansion. And so like, I know the fact that, humans are in space like mining ores or gases to like fuel capitalist society back on earth or wherever it is. And like, 
is, is, is very much a subtext in the film. And then, and then you look at who's, and you look at who's doing it, like whether or not who, who, whatever the class hierarchy is on the ship, like they're still like, it's not the people on earth that are out there doing it. They're like, they're uh, it's the corporations that are whatnot that are behind the desk, reaping the benefits of the labor of like the lower classes and whatnot. Yeah. They're back on earth wearing a suit and sitting in a comfy chair. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because I don't know if you've watched the expanse at all. Um, Mm-mm. I think um, it's a, based on a science fi- uh, series of science fiction novels. Forget the author. Uh, it's a great, great science fiction series on on Amazon, uh, available on Amazon. But the, the premise the, the premise of the film is that uh, humans have colonized co- colonized Mars in the asteroid belt, and uh, Mars has basically um, developed into being like a military power that's um, not as strong as Earth, but definitely. Uh, definitely um um comparable and definitely like a military threat and whatnot and they'll kind of uh and they compete with earth for resources and whatnot and then humans have colonized the asteroid belt which is full of a um a, a very like diverse group of people but they're like grunt labor and like they're they're like mining uh, like water and like and minerals and whatnot for the people back and they're basically the ones that are like um, subsidizing life on earth and mars and so so there's this conflict between like the inner solar system of whatnot and it's again it's like kind of this it's kind of like i mean and there's there's a an alien element to the film um or to the series that's in there, but again, it's very much like a political critique and a critique of like capitalism and who's actually doing the work, who's being exploited for whose benefit and to whose detriment. And uh, I think like there's a lot of similar themes between that and, and um, I mean, the limited window we've seen into the world of, of earth through like the crew of uh, crew of the Nostromo. Yeah. When I, like, what I, yeah, and it's, like, that's another theme of the movie is, like, who is, again, the real monster? Is it, you know, because you can look at the alien and be, like, all right, it's just defending itself, you know, to to the alien's perspective, the human creatures are just as terrifying, you know, to it, and, um, and they talk about that a little bit more in Aliens, but, but yeah, like, there's a scene, one of my favorite parts is, um, yeah, Parker, one of the, the you know, the, the repairmen of the ship. You know, they, they're like, okay, we found this alien distress beacon. And Parker just straight up says, like, we're not a rescue ship. Like, that's not what we're here. That's not, you know, that's not why we're here. I don't want to go do this. And um, and I think, it's, I think it's Dallas and Ripley together kind of remind him that it's in his contract that any potential alien detection has to be investigated with utmost importance or else all shares you know, will be considered forfeit. And it's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like that is like, that's some brutal shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like imagine if like you were, you know, working in your, your architectural job and they were like, okay, if a monkey with a laser cannon on his head comes into the office and starts shooting its employees, you have to grab this knife and go stab it or else you lose your job. <laughs> like I would be like, um, <laughs> I guess I'll lose my job, but again, that's the emphasis for these people is that they can't. They're, you know, they're space truckers, and they do a good job again without saying it. But it's like, yeah, they, they, they need this work. Nobody wants this job, but they need it, and for whatever reason or another. And 
it's it's left a mystery, but it's not ambiguous, which is very very well done. Yep, and just the sign of like a well thought out film that like it's able to have those multiple readings and like dimensions to it, and and, and especially and I, I'm just like I'm just still continually impressed with a uh, with um with how forward thinking it was at the time and how I mean and how and how relevant it still is. It's a it predicted a lot of the problems that we continue to face and handled them in a, like, I think in a fairly successful uh, manner. No, I agree. I think that it, it's, it's, yeah, it's still relevant today as it was then. It's definitely, it's held up. It's, um, it's got its cheesy moments again with robot heads on a table and uh, you know, some of some things here and there are a little bit funny, but uh, yeah, overall I think it's a great <laughs> film and I think it's, it's, it should be like in every movie lover's repertoire of films that they have seen. So yeah, it's funny. Uh, we have a we have a joke in my in our house with my partner. I have I have this like arbitrary cutoff where like I don't really watch. I no longer really watch films before the year two thousand anymore. Okay, <laughs> and people will definitely call me out on that. It's so funny, but uh, I, I say it mostly to aggravate people because obviously, of course, there are there are films that are definitely. <laughs> Or meritable films before uh, before the year two thousand, but <laughs> and and a whole bunch of them. But it, it's just a joke we have around here. And then uh, we started. She watched Alien with me, and she's like, "Oh, this is like before the year 2000 And but but I think what I'm getting at is I think there's there's so few. I mean, there's very few contemporary films that, that do a good job of uh, presenting something, take or taking risks, and. And and presenting something like in an intelligent way that's that has more layers than uh, than just a basic watcher read through, and 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 I think there's so many like and just because of developments in technology, there's and, and I think technology is almost the culprit in a lot of ways. Because if like you watch a film, if technology automatically dates a film if you if it's seen on screen. And if you see like something the pre iPhone era, then you're like, okay, well, this is almost like, like, <laughs> this is a terrible example, but it's the first one that comes to mind. Is that that film like a phone booth with Colin Colin Farrell? <laughs> I don't think I've seen that. Oh, I mean, I'm not recommending it in any means, okay. but but he's basically held hostage by like via a phone. Because, uh, <laughs> I can't remember why exactly, but. But but my point is that it gets so dated because like that technology isn't relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's and people it, today that are like, "What's a phone booth?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, and then, I mean, if it's a period piece, great. But if you're trying to make a point about contemporary society or like or uh, or giving a critique of life in a certain period of time, like you don't want to be distracted by by like technological things that don't fit into the world. And I think, and I think that's what alien does really well is like, it, it didn't, it, it predicted accurately. And like, but like we said before, like modern representations of it haven't like really developed super far beyond that. Yeah. And it's, it's intertwined with the art direction so well that, yeah, it's not like, it's not hyper noticeable. It, it, it's, yeah. it's passable. I think people will notice it, but I think that, it works and I think I think it holds up. I think like you were saying too, it's like a film that is relevant today as it was back then and I think it um I hope I hope I hope more people like it and I hope more people 
uh, watch it and like it is what I meant to say. And uh, yeah, it's a damn good film. I um, um, one thing that I like to do, yeah, uh, it's always fun because again, with each person that comes to the show, there's always two things that are presented. Uh, that's how each each guest works. So it's always fun to kind of compare the two. Uh, and so one thing that I think is kind of funny is both of these movies have a form of like sleeping in space, but one of them is done with like a cryo freezing sleep an alien. And that's another thing I didn't mention in Interstellar is that I like that they don't explain the science of how that water sleeping bed works, but it's also yeah. slightly terrifying and slightly Egyptian in its like presentation. Um, and that also then ties into another theme of Alien, which is that there's actually a lot of Egyptian themes in Alien. There's like kind of quasi hieroglyphics on the wall when Brett's walking around. Yeah. And there's a cat in Alien, and that's yep. very Egyptian. Um, but uh, Jonesy. Jonesy. I have a I have a t-shirt that has Jonesy from this movie, and in like a super 70s retro font, it just says Jonesy with a cat paw illustration, and then a photo of the cat. And I wear it around, and people are like, is that your cat? And I'm like, fuck no. Why the fuck would I wear a t-shirt of my own goddamn cat? Like, it's kind of funny. But, um, uh, what other comparisons? What, are, what, else, what, what, what else compares between these two? Science fiction, uh, space travel. Science. One, one thing uh, we talked about in Interstellar is, like, uh, both films have, like, a, a very explicit moment where the stakes get very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, and, and that's what can, uh, just really contributes to the, uh, to the, um, immediacy and like the, the terror or, and, and like the anxiety of both films, like for interstellar, it's when they get off Miller's planet and seven years have passed and in, and in, uh, and an alien it's, it's the chest buster, obviously the, and, and, and having this, contagion loose on your ship <laughs> and so it, like they're different moments but i think that's something that a lot of film a lot of effective films really a lot of less effective films miss is there there's a they struggle to find a way to make the stakes real and relatable everybody can re- i mean like conceptually everybody could relate to being like to like somehow missing like 10 years of your kid's life, like in an instant or like being like exposed. I mean, everybody has been, the idea of contagion is like very, uh, very much in on the forefront of thought at the moment. But yeah. And actually it's funny is when you mentioned that, cause that's another theme there is uh, it's, it's not talked about an alien, but it is talked about in aliens and some other stories as well, including the video game, which is that actually Ellen has a daughter back on earth uh, named Amanda uh, so that's kind of another theme. Our main characters have human children back on Earth that they are are thinking about in their travels through space, and and yeah, not being there with them. That's another. That's another thing I didn't think about. Did you ever? Did you ever? Did you? Did you collect the alien action figure toys when you were a kid? I had a couple of them. Yeah, back in the day when they used to market children's toys, the R-rated films. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And wasn't that so absurd? I mean, I had I had a bunch of them. I had, I had a few friends that were like far more into it than I was, but uh, I mean, they were pretty cool. Especially when Alien came out, they made a doll that was about uh, I want to say like two, maybe three feet high. It was pretty big. I want maybe two feet, 
And it was pretty big. Yeah, there's TV commercials. You can find them on YouTube. Look up like alien toy commercials. And it's like these little <laughs> kids. And they're like, here's the face hugger. And it's like grabbing a human doll and the alien is attacking it. And yeah, it's like here kids have a doll that represents the horrors of sexuality in a very dark, <laughs> scary horror Ridley Scott movie rated R from 1979. Yeah, oh yeah, great job. Thumbs up. Um Obviously, as Aliens came out, and that one has space marines and guns and grenades, uh, obviously the toys for that were much, much, much more. There was only a few for Alien, but I've seen them. I just, I don't, I can't collect action figures. I have too many hobbies as is. I can't get into action <laughs> figures. My girlfriend will leave me, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I never got it. Yeah, I, I left most of mine behind in my childhood, I think, but... I'd be curious to know whether it ended up. I mean, I'm sure somebody has got a whole like, horde of them somewhere. But <laughs> Yeah, somebody's got my old Aliens action figures right now. I just hope it's a kid having fun with it and not some some weird guy who's like putting it in a jewel case just to hold on to it, but whatever. So. No, it's definitely probably some 35-year-old in his parents' basement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some neck beard. And um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I also forgot to do this last episode. So um, as my friend Janine would say... Alien, no thank you. Italian, yes thank you. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, thanks for being here today to talk about one of my favorite films. It's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a, it's been really good to catch up over over two of our uh, favorite films of the last couple decades and being able to geek out about them. Our two favorite science fiction films. One of them about the hope and light of humanity and one of them that's not <laughs> these these yeah both these movies will make you feel the feels just very different feels um but different, yeah, feels. different feels um well uh thank you everybody for listening at home too uh we'll be back next week i think we'll be talking about the exorcist next week it depends on how uh the schedule in the next few days comes up for me but uh either way thanks everybody and again thank you matthew we'll see everybody again soon my pleasure thanks bye Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. You